Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Tom Hardy Appreciation Podcast. <laughs> oh, God, are we going there? Oh, Episode yeah. 47. Uh, to my left, uh, Hunter S. Thompson has joined us in the podcast studio. That's right, man. Ready to blow the lid off this, please. Let's go. Ryan is still wearing the same hat and glass as he was last time he was here. I'm, it's a thing now. I don't know that he's taken them off <laughs> in, the inter- <laughs> in the intermediate time. He wasn't wearing them when he was cooking Saturday. I can verify that. Okay, fair enough. Are yeah. you sure it was Ryan? Yeah. Nicole? I'm pretty sure it was Ryan. Mm-hmm. Nobody else would go through that torturous of a process to make an Asian meal. You're welcome, by the way. It was deliciously spicy. <laughs> fair enough. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Revenant time. Mm-hmm. It is based on a true story number two. Starring Leo DiCaprio and, more importantly, Tom Hardy, directed by, uh, I always forget the guy's first Iñarritu, name. Iñárritu, Alejandro. Yeah. Is it Alejandro? Gutierrez. Alejandro Ava Maria. So we're bringing it back around. Our first episode of the movie crew was also an Alejandro Iñárritu joint uh, Birdman. Yes. Or whatever it's subtitle was. He's become quite the Hollywood darling since then. Yeah. now he wins Oscars for everything he mm-hmm. puts out. Yeah, no. Uh, this movie included. He's mm-hmm. got good cinema. He's got. I don't know if it's the same cinematographer as the last movie, but um, does decent camera work. Seems to be able to pick up good actors. He's got momentum. Yeah, going definitely. into. I mean, he wasn't exactly. Was was Inyarito the one who discovered Javier Bardem? Uh, I'm trying to remember. He was in Beautiful. Oh no, my god! No, you'd, ha- yeah, you'd yeah. have to go farther. back. Back though, but probably I don't remember who starred in like Imores Peros because it's been. It's in any been case, this guy's time. got a pedigree, and uh, he's still making movies. This is a very recent one. This is this 2015. is yeah, 2015. This is about as recent as we get around <laughs> these parts. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> so Nicole, uh, you have the floor. Okay, so based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Now the cliche thing that my brain thinks of when we think of things based on a true story is that miserable survival story. You know, whether it's people crashing their planes in the Andes or people who are voluntarily climbing mountains for no reason. And, and get wedged and, between rocks. Yeah. You know, yeah, people who get their arms stuck in rocks. Oh, God, for thank 100. you for not picking that movie. I almost, I almost was going to joke pick that last week just to freak you out, but I wasn't going to do it to you for real. Oh, God. You have some limb claustrophobia, David? Is I, that... No. It's the okay. Franco I have portion. some Franco claustrophobia. You had a Francophobia? Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I can't stand that man's smile. You know, and so there, you know, there's plenty of movies to choose from that have this survivalist based on a true miserable human existence story. Um, but I decided to go with one that just is beautiful mm-hmm. and enjoyable to watch. Not, and that's why I picked The Revenant. Um, so I wanted to break down kind of, you know, what parts are true and what parts make this a great movie because they're two very different things. So this movie is about a man named uh, Hugh Glass, and he is a fur trapper, and he's in a little brigade of people that are, uh, you know, on this fur trapping mission, one of which uh, is Fitzgerald, played by Tom Hardy, who we will get to. Uh, there's another guy named Bridger who's young, and I think it's Colonel, uh, is it Ashley, is their, you know, head guy? Anyways, those four people, they are real people, and they are in this movie. But the way this movie unfolds, we take, like, 
We take like Hugh Glass, who's known for being attacked by a bear. And yes, that is true. Mm -hmm. But most of the other events around this are not true. But the thing is, it's not important that they're not true. What's important is that we took just enough truth and embellished it to make a gorgeous movie. And that's what's important mm -hmm. when you're doing a based on a true story movie. Mm -hmm. So let's open up. Uh, this movie opens up with our fur trapping team getting attacked by the Akari Indians. Now, this was true. The Akari did, they speak, they call them the Re in the movie. Yeah. These Indians were nasty and they did attack people all the time. And yes, Hugh Glass was attacked in this opening sequence. He was also attacked by the Arkari many times in the future and died in an Akari attack 10 years after <gasps> the events in this movie took place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is was... not depicted in this film. No, it's not. We don't get that far in. Um, so, Hugh so Hugh Glass can be killed. He can be, but he, uh, he managed to get attacked many times by many Indians, by many bears, by many things before it finally oh, got, okay. even pirates, because before he was a fur trader, he got attacked by pirates in like the Caribbean and had to swim to shore yeah, in Texas. Like, fuck that, I'm gonna yeah. go to land. <laughs> so there's this beautiful opening scene, and I love the cinematography in this opening fight sequence when these uh, re-attack our, our, you know, fair traders. <laughs> Um, there's this beautiful way that the camera follows the action in these scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not choppy at all. Like normally when you have attack scenes, you have a lot of choppiness. The Ridley Scott 15 frame thing yeah. where it's shaking. The, the camera's not merely getting like the, the shake, but it is thrusting up and down. And it's also and cutting so quickly that, that the violence is almost implied rather than you understanding like who's getting attacked and, and from what angle. And uh, this, uh, this approaches uh, this attack scene in like a really neat way where the camera is just kind of like walking through and focusing on separate parts and does a lot of panning out so you can see like the whole uh, area that this is taking place. And I, I just, I really love the cinematography in this opening attack. Yeah, no, this- It's gorgeous. This, this scene, it's it's very reminiscent of the Birdman single camera thing yeah. where it, it literally seems like someone is either walking or running around the scene and just panning to different shots. But oh, like I said, in such a slow, fluid way. It's oh yeah, not, no, yeah. it's not nauseating at all. And this is, I want to, I want to make this the first point of several in this uh, in this podcast, where I compare this to our uh, our staple effigy for this category, um, Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> also open. Well, it doesn't quite open with this. It really, really should have, since the actual opening of it is a man crying in front of a grave, which is incredibly gauche and frankly ridiculous. The Same um, thing he did in Schindler's List. Yeah, um, Saving Private Ryan has an opening fight scene and it is extremely brutal and it's a real thing that happened it's and, berating. and there's a lot of guts and there's a lot of gore and I cannot emphasize how much better Inyaratu's cameraman was than Spielberg's. Um, Saving Private Ryan looks like it was filmed through a filter. Um, it, it is what would be considered in any photographer's mind to be massively overexposed. Mm -hmm. The colors are almost entirely washed out. And I understand that was done for effect. There's like a real grainy. The like, effect 
is not good. The effect is way overdone. By contrast, in this movie, in The Revenant, and I had the I had the Blu-ray versions of both of them to compare them to. Okay. The color grading in this movie is better than just about any movie I've seen except Inglorious Bastards. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, Inglorious Bastards is just color perfect. Like the chroma in that is top notch. But this one, because it's mostly winter scenes with trees, um, they made sure that all of the colors are present in every shot. And that shows through the entirety of the battle. Um, the battle is not very bright. It's not very dark. And it happens during midday. So that yeah. kind of makes sense. It's actually probably a golden hour shot. Yeah. Now it's, I, think yeah about it. I mean, the sun's on the downward. It's, it's, it's heading down. It's not heading up while this is going on. But the thing that makes this impressive when compared to Saving Private Ryan, and I don't want to suggest that Saving Private Ryan's first scene is bad because it's not there are parts of it that are good but as a whole it sucks because it's literally uh, there's like a thousand people in aggregate in that first scene and the level of chaos that's going on once you get over the fact that your mind is numb after 45 seconds of this shit um which uh, whether that was intentional or not i guess it will leave up to tom hanks but um they have a thousand people and machine guns and everybody has a gun and there's explosions. And that scene is no more chaotic than the scene in The Revenant, which is 30 settlers, only half of which are firing guns because they only get one shot, mm -hmm. um, and a band of Indians. Yeah, and it would have been, um, I think, uh, it would have been maybe like... 15 to 20 ish Indians in the village when they were kind of going through and then a few more. So, Just, I mean, the we're chaos talking, is we're so talking about like between 50 to 60 people in this whole battle. The really. chaos is so fluid. Yeah, it's so fluid. And you don't need Tom Hanks to remind you that these things are going on. There are several there are several moments in that where they they do the um, oh, God, it's just someone staring at something awful happening. That does not happen here. Awful things happen, and you get to see a little bit of them, and then the camera becomes disinterested and goes back up to someone who's still alive. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a much, that's that's a more graceful way to do it. Oh, this it's a very graceful battle scene, no mm -hmm. no doubt. And um, so as this battle takes place, you know, our, our team moves towards the river to avoid the Indians. And... Hauling as many pelts as they can. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then they, they decide that they can't stay on the river because the Indians will be able to find them and that they need to backtrack to the fort on land. So a couple are true-false fact-fiction thing here. Um, in the movie, Leo's character, Hugh Glass, uh, is really revered as some sort of, you know, man who knows the terrain. Mm -hmm. This would not have been the case. Okay. Uh, the year that the real Hugh Glass got attacked by the grizzly bear was his first year on one of these trapping expeditions. Mm -hmm. So he was not real familiar with the territory. Um, but there was, you know, there was the case where they got attacked by Indians and had to backtrack and Hugh Glass off on his own got attacked by a bear. Cause that's the next kind of major scene after we get, we get attacked. There's some, 
you know, people are like, I don't know which way to go. Should we stay on the river? Should we not stay on the river? They establish that Fitzgerald is a piece of shit. Yeah, Fitzgerald gets tons of talking points, which is great because Tom Hardy is good in everything. Uh, this is no different. And we uh, we get to our crux of our movie, which is the Leo gets attacked by a bear. This is what makes this a true story, is because some poor guy did get attacked by a bear. Mm-hmm. And... After this, well, I guess, do we want to talk about the bear attack at all? Like, cinematically? Felt Uh, like it was... It's fucking nasty. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, um, it's unsettling. There's a tremendous amount of CGI in this movie, which is, by necessity, it's pretty hard to get a bear to restrainedly attack a human being. This bear scene is uncomfortably long. Yeah, because the bear comes and attacks and then leaves yeah, and, and then, then comes, comes back, back again. Yeah, and then leaves. which is Hugh's fault. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. That was not going to happen. There, yeah, this bear attack is like long and ridiculous. Um, but so is this movie. Yes, <laughs> everything yes. in this movie fits into this. This movie is two and a half hours of a man struggling to kill someone else while he's seriously imperiled. Mm-hmm. Yes, so. So Leo gets attacked by a bear and they can't bring him back because they have to travel by land and they can't use their boat to get back to the fort. Now, one of the things this movie that's very prominent in this movie that's not real is the fact that when the real Hugh Glass got attacked by a bear, it was in the middle of summer. So he was like all this went down in the middle of the summer. This movie has a totally different feel, though. This thing goes down in the middle of winter, like to really maximize the misery and just kind of like the iciness of this journey. We start our journey like right at the beginning of winter. And that really does play a role into how the movie develops and how this journey goes on. This movie is torture pornography for the most part. I mean, it is, it is its cardinal virtue as a film. (laughs) It's got, I, it's not quite body horror, but it's really, really close. And everything in the movie um, pushes toward that. In fact, almost every point of fiction is about the suffering of Hugh Glass. Uh, there's, he, uh, he has a wife and a son that don't actually exist in real life. Yes, those don't exist in real life either. Uh, Hugh Glass was uh, taken captured by Pawnee at some point before he started doing fur trapping. And he may have known like some Pawnee language wise, but there's no evidence that he was married and had Shacked like a up teenage and had a love child. Half breed and then Pawnee had child. Both of them brutally murdered by psychos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um again they like made, right in front of his face. Right in front of him. That was that was entirely for the benefit of the viewing audience's voyeurism into the gore and agony well, of and this I feel one like, person. I feel like also setting it in winter, because as we work through our journey, one of the most gorgeously, you know, bloody scenes in this would have been totally useless had this movie gone down in summer. It would have been unnecessary, which is like the horse scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, every opportunity was taken yeah. to make this more miserable for this character. And why is it miserable for this character? Because of the haunting. This movie has a strange, like, dualistic purpose that's driving it forward. I mean, Hugh obviously wants to survive, um, but it's called The Revenant, and a revenant's a reference to a ghost that haunts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not entirely clear who the ghost is, because the obvious literal 
person would be his wife, who at several points he envisions either in a dream state or in a state of delirium, one or the other. Um, but the other one is Fitzgerald's revenant is Hugh. Yeah. Because Hugh is in this completely unstoppable state of making his life uh, worse. Uh, which which is a mild way to put it since Fitzgerald is a piece of shit and kind of has it coming. But that does not change Fitz's uh, view of what's going on. I mean, he is, from the start, uh, Hugh, while not being as totally entitled as the captain, Hugh's the one who knows what's going on despite the fact that Fitzgerald, you know, is he's a perfectly capable human being and he wants the self-respect that comes from that and can't get it from any of his partners because Hugh knows everything. And then when Hugh gets mortally wounded, everybody reveres him, and he has to carry him up a goddamn mountain, um, and then he tries to kill him, and that doesn't work, and then he tries to escape, and that doesn't work. So, there's a play on words going on, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched a documentary that Fox put out about this movie uh, called, like, a Something Unseen. I don't remember the title of it. Uh, all you should know is uh, to not watch it, because it's awful. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And it did nothing to enlighten me on this, but I'm just going to assume since this is the man who put out Birdman that he was capable of making this double entendre. Work oh, here. of course. And there's also, you know, when we get to this point, uh, even as early as the the bear attack, you know, we've got a lot of interaction with Indians, whether it's, you know, the fact that Hugh is seeing his wife or that there's actual Indians or his son's that. And there's a scene uh, really early on and I felt like this was kind of very Hollywoodized. You know, there's a few stabs at where the Indians are basically telling the white men that they took everything from mm-hmm. them. And so there's, there is a, a bit of a kind of plea to, uh, to the Indians like stance uh, on, on how they would feel about having these trackers. It's, it's, it's weaved in there nicely um, because they decided to take the liberty of having Leo's character uh, you know, married to a, an Indian woman. Um, you know, I, I felt like that was a very deliberate choice so that you can add the, uh, you know, stupid fucking white man comments <laughs> in there, which is, is a very Hollywood, uh, you know, way to approach Look, if there's the Native a- American situation. If there's anything in this tale that is based on a true story, it is our complete and utter disdain for Native Americans. (laughs) So, regardless of what happened to Hugh Glass, this all happened to Native Americans. No, that's what I mean, but that's what I mean. So, I mean, as as, uh, Inuritu took the artistic liberty to make sure that 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 was incorporated into this, you know. Um, So, Leo, or Hugh, he's attacked by the bear. Um, From this point on, uh, Leo's acting will consist of heavy breathing. Um, and wearing makeup well. And wearing a lot of scar makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, they're, they're like, oh, we can't leave him because he's not dead. And so they carry him for a little bit and people are like, this is bullshit. So Ashley, the lead guy, says that he'll pay two people in the party to stay with Hugh until he dies so that they can give him a Christian burial and then catch up with the rest the, of the party. The captain's name's party. Andrew Henry. It was Andrew Henry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Ashley was uh, another one, but he wasn't in the movie. He was in the real story. Sorry. So we have Fitzgerald 
and Bridger, who's a young member of the team, saying that they will stay back for a payment of, what, 80 extra dollars, whatever that was in 1820, that they'll stay back until Hugh dies. It's probably a million in today's dollars. It was, it was enough to encourage Fitzgerald, who's really a dick, to stay because they'd already lost so many pelts and he was so afraid of not getting paid. He was like, it's worth it for just staying here for oh, we a gotta, gotta, So what the captain offers is he says, all right, we need two or three men to stay behind to stay with Glass until he dies and then bury him. And uh, Glass's son says, you know, keep your money out or whatever. I don't want it. I'm going to stay anyway. And then Bridger, the young guy, goes, whatever, you know, like, I'll stay too. And then something gets mentioned about, well, you can keep my share. And then the captain ups it to from like 50 to to $100. And then the camera like slowly pans down towards Fitzgerald <laughs> because you see the slow calculus going and he's like all right then i'll stay even though he's he was the one agitating to for fucking leaving him yeah but the only reason he decides to stay with glass is of the promise of getting the share of the other two people to, to stay and that behind. was all that was all accurate those two were real people that were picked to stay with with hugh glass right it's actually pretty close to the the true story you know so so hugh in one of his flashbacks I think his wife tells him or he tells his son in some sort of flashback, as long as you have breath, you fight. And mm -hmm. he really takes this to heart because he is a man that should be dead, yeah. but he keeps <laughs> living. And after a few days and he's still not dead, yeah. Bridger and Fitzgerald, well, Bridger not so much, but Fitzgerald really wants to go meet back up with the party. He's really not wanting to wait around. He thinks he's going to get attacked by Indians. And for fuck's sake, this guy won't die. I mean, we are in the middle of the woods. They don't have any kind of medicine. No, look, I mean, if he wasn't such a dick, uh, Fitzgerald's a very practical man. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the kind of person who manages to survive in these scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 98 type, times out of 100, well, yeah, he's right. Yeah, the yeah. type <laughs> of person that survives in these scenarios has to be, you know, a pretty rough and tumble uh, Customer. individual. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, so for the movie, we have to create a lot of, a lot of you know, antagonistic intention. So Fitzgerald kills Leo's uh, half-breed son. And of course, Leo gets to watch this, but can't do anything because he's paralyzed from this bear attack. Fitzgerald then uh, tells Bridger that they need to go and that Hawk must have run away, Leonardo's son. Uh, so Bridger does not know that he is dead. And they kind of just bury Leo, shallowly leave him there and, and are like, I'm sorry, I know we said we'd stay with you, but we really need to get going. Proper burial. Yeah, so the proper burial was weak at best, but he was still alive, so you didn't want to get him down that deep anyways. Yeah. This isn't actually the first point of incompetence and uh, childishness that Bridger shows. I didn't catch this until the last time I reviewed the movie, uh, but Bridger is the one who accidentally shoots somebody on his own team during the raid. Um, so Bridger is established very early on as being a hapless individual, but he is and also he's naive. He's a he he's is young. a kid. He's the youngest. Yeah, he's the youngest person other than uh, the the half breed son on yeah. the who it expedition. should be noted did not shoot anybody in their own party. Who the uh, Leo's son? Because he didn't exist. Oh, okay, very good. Well, let's <laughs> see. Bully for him. One one or the other. No, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Hawk Hawk's sins are myriad for. 
another generation to sort out. We have to, we, we can't, we can't sit here and prognosticate about what it would have taken for Hawk to actually be respected by the people around him. That would take hundreds more years of, um, <laughs> literally hundreds, at least 200 yeah. <laughs> before, before we'll have an answer to that question. But when it comes to Bridger, Bridger is for the most part, just a dumb kid. Yeah. And he is probably the most interesting character to me in this movie. He's, he's as he's acted as well as he could be acted. He's obviously overshadowed by his, uh, by his Erzat's dad, um, Fitzgerald, but powerhouse um, that is <laughs> Tom Hardy. Yeah, I mean Tom Hardy's performance in this is fantastic. And there's a scene that comes up. Did it already come up? No, it already came up. It's the one where he's uh, he's describing being uh, scalped. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so because, some of the nuances. That's a great yeah, scene. Fitzgerald is uh, almost scalped in this movie. He uh, he's got a little bit of hair on front. He's he's got a very like mid fifties comb over look to his hair, except it's curly. Um, and he ex- he's explaining to Bridger um, how he got scalped. And during this scene, uh, this was when I realized the first time that Tom Hardy was in this movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because as we mentioned before. Tom Hardy's an actual actor who can not only like talk like other people, but can like act Inflect. like other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he can carry himself differently from movie to movie. If you watch this and then watch Inception and then watch, there's a third example Bronson, I always go to. which is to. what I was going to pick. Yeah. Or it, again, uh, Dark Knight Rises, which you should not watch. Um, <laughs> Dark Knight Rises is so bad they had to put a muzzle on Tom Hardy to let him in the movie. Mm-hmm. And he's still far and away the best thing in the movie. <laughs> but he's a completely different person in all three, all four of those movies. He's, and he's convincing. Yes. In all of them. He has probably the second best accent in this movie, despite being born thousands and thousands of miles away from where any of this took place. Yes. Um, and w- the best part about his accent is that if they had wanted to, they could have made him British. Yeah. yeah. They could have given him a British accent. They could have made him French-Canadian. They could have made him any number of... No, uh, but I, I'm they, saying he could have just used his natural accent. Yeah. But he didn't fucking need that crutch. Unlike Leo DiCaprio, who thankfully for most of this movie can't talk. Yeah. So you can't tell how bad his accent is, but you can hear it at the beginning and end. And it, he did not, he did nothing. No, to it, prepare it sounds for this like role, Leo. As far as dialect is concerned. Yeah. Um, it's not quite as bad as Blood Diamond, but only because, what about that? only because he doesn't talk as much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll get back to Leo later. There's a specific scene that I think sort of encapsulates him in this movie. But yeah, I, but that scalping thing is the scalping thing is great. great mm-hmm. It's a great scene. It also kind of falls in with that body horror thing because you've got like somebody that's survived this horrible. Thing. And, and, and the and, goddamn scraping noise. Yeah, okay, so, uh, yeah, so the, the <laughs> Inurito in several points in this film allows like atmospheric tension to build, right? So without having like an, an overt soundtrack, um, right, directing us in these issues, right? We're led through the kind of, through the focus of the camera, you know, we'll like concentrate certain aspects um, of the film itself. And it usually does have something to do with the body. So like the first time the film does this really well is in the, um, the scene when um, Fitzgerald and Glass, and Glass has been attacked by the bear, and they're waiting with the, his kid and his son um, 
and Fitzgerald's character says, look, you know, you got it. We got, we got to fucking leave. Um, you know, you know, you're going to die. Right. And if you not dying is fucking keeping us here so that we might get all caught by Indians and killed. Right. So the best thing you can do for your son is to die, die. here and allow us to fucking leave and bury you. And he's like, I can make that happen for you, right? We can agree to this. And all you have to do, because you can't talk, is just blink. Just and I'll blink. Let, that, I'll let that happen <laughs> for And he him. basically just watches and him he until he has but to. He's, but he's right next I to know. his face. And he's like, all you got to do is blink. And you just see fucking poor glass. <laughs> just like, I want to keep my eyes open. And the fucking resignation that he w- that he does have to blink at some point. And yeah. then the fucking. But like once again, there's no music. But what we get is this. Is the, is this. He'll use this device of sound, uh, usually wind blowing in the trees, and that will kind of escalate and escalate as attention moves within a scene. And with that scene between him describing his him being scalped to the young boy, um, the guy, the young boy is sketching a design onto his onto his metal canteen. And so you hear this screechy, 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 screechy. But if you listen to that scene, the screeching doesn't increase in tone, but it increases in the speed of the scratching. So as Tom Hardy's describing Until his he's scalp. finally like, stop. As yeah. he's, as he's... <laughs> he's like, hey, mind cutting that fucking out? You know, like <laughs> after describing the fucking skin being torn from his skull, you know, like it's a good, it's really effective. And it's just <laughs> one of those little subtle things that, you know, when you're not going to, when you're not going to have a soundtrack be overly prominent in the way of just, of moving action, or especially heightening tension or conflict within a scene, um, using you know, non, in a sense, non-diegetic sound, right? Sound that is not outside the, 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 the frame or the story or the setting. But there's a lot of sound of water flowing too during yeah. this movie. But once again, it will increase, it will allow the scene, it will allow itself to come in when characters need to communicate more effectively. Like when they're arguing down by the river, you do hear the rushing of the water going through and that's when they're arguing around. And, you know, Inurito is really skillful, I think, at the way that he allows that sound to permeate into the sound into the soundtrack for specifically dramatic effect and that's fucking it's a brilliant that is one of the most that's one of the best scenes in the film uh in my opinion is the uh, the, the tom hardy scalping scene well much like all the other tom hardy scenes yeah no yeah so good to uh, to be fair to round on the soundtrack for one half a second since we are talking about it um, there is music. There is yeah. there is music. It only comes into play when people aren't talking. It's only when they're doing sweeping vistas or there's and just it sounds like, like a fill. It, it's a very Philip Glass variation sounding. Yeah, um, it's there's some drums. There's some like synth strings going yeah. on. Um, it's not quite like Birdman. Birdman was all drum fills basically um it's well, certainly like that not... city jazzy feeling and this yeah is, yeah this, yeah, this is, is certainly this it's is melodramatic more, it's starker and more staccato kind of the music mm-hmm. the way it it builds well and the other thing is as we kind of kick off the next part of this movie which is the journey to the fort so when you have these uh you know when you have movies where people are surviving in the elements you have kind of like this general like you, you get your feel from the landscape. Like it's kind of like you get your personality from the land. And there's a few movies that do this very, very well. And this one, uh, one of the ways that it kind of takes in the vastness of its surroundings on this journey is to have several, it, it, several. There's several scenes where the actions kind of broke up, and you just see like the the sky in between a, uh, uh, 
like a group of trees. And he does this a few times through the the movie, you know, where it almost just kind of like resets and you it looks up and there's like the, the trees, the old growth forest, you see the sky and you get like the the blowing and it really kind of creates that, you know, like old growth forest atmospheric like vastness. Yeah. You know, it, it, well, and a, a lot of those scenes are from helicopters. They're several thousand feet in the air. There's, there's a, there's one very specific scene, um, that's coming up. It's actually, I think it's the scene right after their quote unquote proper burial. Um, well, that's about where we're at. No, that's, yeah. that's what I mean. It's right <laughs> after that. Um, glass is sitting half buried, expecting to be killed by, uh, re at this point, since, uh, he doesn't seem to be dying by any other means. Um, and Bridger and Fitzgerald are off to meet the party cause they don't want to get killed by Ree. I, I think this is the first, I, it's either the first or the second scene where, uh, his revenant shows up. Um, his wife floats above him and mm-hmm. gives some encouraging words. And there's just this column of a cloud, um, looking down over a valley that's as scenic as every other thing in this entire Canadian wilderness where the the movie doesn't the movie was shot in Canada affecting like Wyoming somewhere around there. Yeah, so where the movie would have like where the real story took place was kind of in like the Yellowstone area like Wyoming, Montana. Um mm-hmm. and actually in real life Glass was probably traveling through more prairie land than mountain land, but for the purpose of film, we've got like a lot of it was mostly filmed in like old growth forests in Alberta, Canada. Yeah. The particular movie. Mountains are much more scenic in their business. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, and it, they're way more arduous to have to climb over. So it just adds to like the misery of the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bridger's, Bridger's ultimate scene is about to, it's not necessarily the climax of the movie for him, but it's certainly the turning point. Um, happens in this next scene that column of clouds uh transitions to Fitzgerald smoking a pipe when he lets slip that there were in fact a dozen instead of 20 re by the creek the, this was a weird detail that uh Bridger picks up on but basically the culmination of this scene is that Bridger realizes for the first time that he's been lied to. Yes, that he's being manipulated. And this is a weird moral quandary because Bridger is given no agency in this movie at all. Um, He is more or less forced to go along with whatever is going on around him, either by the force of words. As the youngest guy on the totem pole, you gotta just do whatever the person above you says, basically, in these situations. I mean, he is just... almost like life on the boat. He's just following orders, and I think Hugh Glass actually literally says that line when they go back to the fort. He says they were just following orders, Mm -hmm. and I really hope that wasn't as heavy-handed a commentary as it very well could have been, uh, because I think Bridger's inagency in this is what makes his character so interesting, because he was convinced to go along up to this point, and then at the end of a gun was compelled to continue going. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere for him. He can't go back to Hugh. He assumes Hugh is dead. Um, and But if he leaves now with Fitzgerald, who is the only person who knows anything about anything around here, I, he's, given, he's given no option. He was tricked into being here, and he is now an accomplice to what is effectively the devil of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's entirely possible maybe he would have shot Fitzgerald, but maybe not because that would be the innocent thing to do. Why would an innocent person shoot 
another person, even if they were being a jerk about something. Um, this culminates very poorly for him. <laughs> but this is the scene. It's a rough moral dilemma he's placed in, and it affects him. It's that's the thing. It's not even a dilemma. Like he he didn't have a choice. He doesn't have any choices. He had yeah. no choice. Well, he has no capacity or ability to solve his own problem. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's like you figure he's what like 15, 16 years old. In an old, in, in 1823, yeah. in the middle of nowhere with hostile Indians chasing him around, like, you've got to kind of, you know, go with your team at some point as well, right? Like, you know, so I mean, I'd... It's look, kill or be killed. Yeah, it's it's a tough situation and realizing that you've been lied to all of a sudden is what, put, is what brought you here. Like, what do you, but like, I, I don't have the ability to make it right. You know, like, I think that's how he's got to think about it as well. Like, I mean, and that's frustrating. I mean, that's part of why I think they, you know, why the character's angry by the time they do make it back to the fort, right? Why he fucking is like, you know, hey, here's your money. Um, because the 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 captain, the guy who ran mm. the expedition and is already back at the fort, you know, even offers him his share. And he just fucking gets up and leaves, you know? Like, I think, he, you know, his anger is fucking palpable because he knows, you know, he wasn't strong enough. In, in that situation. Well, he wasn't strong enough to stand up to Fitzgerald. Well, uh, and it wouldn't have necessarily done him any good anyways. Yeah. I no, mean, Fitzgerald only beguiles him in a practical sense. I mean, his his morals are intact. It was just he was given absolutely no leeway to exercise them. Well, that's okay. But my point is, is that like there's morality and then there's your ability to do what is moral. And he has the morality once real, realizing that he's been lied to, Right the moral choice would have been to go back because also too, like he doesn't know that Fitzgerald killed Leo's son. Like no. he doesn't know that. I mean, he thinks you know, that, yeah, yeah. Ho he thinks somewhere fucking he out thinks there. He just wandered off or something. Yeah. Because so I mean, that's it, what Fitzgerald told him. Yeah. And in his mind, Hawk, if his father, if, if glass is dead, Hawk might be coming on our, on our path. Right. But like, even that's a fucking dubious proposition to begin with. And I mean, it's something to be moral, but then it's, it's having to make, you know, to make what is moral in the world. And, you know, like, that's the other question, right? That's not like, you know, sometimes doing the right thing is really fucking hard. And that's why a lot of people never, you know, don't do the right thing. That's um, why they're in this dilemma in the first place was they were trying to do right by Glass. Mm -hmm. And then Glass kind of didn't cooperate. <laughs> Glass didn't do the right thing, you know? That's like, right. Fucking living on. God damn it. So, uh, Shooting that so one of my bear. next favorite body horror scenes in this movie comes up as, uh, you know, as Bridger and uh, Fitzgerald have moved on and... Well on their way to the fort. Yeah, and Hugh gets up just enough strength to crawl out of his shallow grave so that he doesn't get killed by Indians after all of this. And he makes it down to the river. Um... So the bear attacked his throat and he tries to drink some water out of the river and it pours out of his throat. It's very exciting, but he's it's the mountain man that he is. He has a solution for this. Oh, what's the solution, Nicole? So he packs some uh, gunpowder into his throat and then he you... lights a little bit of lichen and puts it up to his throat and basically explodes the skin shut. Oh, yes. On his throat, like cauterizes his wound so that he can then take in liquids. I can and guarantee it's, it's, a, it's a great. I love that. I, scene. I read nothing about the factuality of the story outside of the relationship angles. There's no way that actually happened. Well, okay, so the throat injury is accurate because evidently uh, the way that it healed, like Hugh Glass was never able to talk the same way again. That um, I believe. But yeah, as far as whether or not he 
blew up his neck to heal the this solution uh, is hilarious <laughs> and I, simultaneously gruesome in just a beautiful beautiful I way. am shocked this is this is 100% true I have to absolutely <laughs> I refuse Well next time you have a throat injury <laughs> when you're stuck in the middle of an old, old growth forest try doing that and all see right, if, see if it works all right I'll tell you what next time I cut myself shaving I'll just put some isopropyl alcohol on my throat Pull up my bic and we'll test it out. What do, you, what, do you, what do you say? I like it. I like it. It's just the the A to B to C in this scene is so amazing. He's been like, it, this wound has had a week to heal and it hasn't killed him yet. And it's somehow, it is somehow still open enough that water just Gushes flows out, out of, of his neck. <laughs> it's such a... Oh god, it's 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 so funny. Like it's it's so unnecessarily comical the way that this scene plays out. Like he, and he literally it's it's so matter of fact as well. He drinks some water, water just oozes out of his <laughs> neck and he goes, "What do I do?" And then immediately packs gunpowder in it, puts it on, it explodes, he screams. It's so it, it, funny. He just pass out afterwards. Yeah. Like it was really painful. It's so funny. It, it probably wouldn't have been as funny with another actor. I mean, is but... that yeah? If it wasn't Leo burning his his throat <laughs> shut, no. I, I mean, is is that comic relief in this? I mean, is this kind of like just a break, you know, to where you can like? I felt like it was. It's okay. a river scene. Like, yeah. there's no tension. There's no way someone's gonna come and interfere with this. The way that it's shot doesn't imply it like it would have been it would have been an actual like shock if someone mm-hmm. if something had happened to him at that moment it would have been like the start of a fight uh the way that the initial scene but I guess was. It's, it's such an unexpected way to like handle that situation such a but weird it, thing yeah fucking ridiculous <laughs> yeah I mean, that's just, but that's, this is not the only thing that's ridiculous in it this, is the most ridiculous thing in this movie it okay is. we're talking about someone that already got attacked by a bear for like 10 minutes that's not ridiculous at all yeah <laughs> According to you, that actually happened. Yeah, that so actually occurred. I, no. And the, the other, the other thing is that even though uh, Leonardo earns earns his award many times over for uh, most acting in this movie, <laughs> um, the camera. The other thing that makes me think that Ignatiu actually thinks this scene is funny is that he doesn't linger on Leo's face mm-hmm. all that much. He moves between his face and other things and, you know, enough of the background. Because when when the when the movie's being melodramatic, it focuses directly on Hugh's face. Oh, yeah. And you just get all the contortions. It happens, um, it happens all over the place. It happened in the scene where it was the just blink scene. Mm-hmm. It happens when he's buried the first time. It happens at the very end of the movie. It's, it's just this in the scene uncomfortable up prolonged when he, shots. When he runs into the uh, Pawnee man. So, you know, he blows up his throat. He stays by the river. He catches a fish. He swims down river when the Indians come. And he's still hungry and such. And he does run into a Pawnee man uh, on this this journey, too. And that was a good... That's a good scene because he's crawling through the snow and he sees, he sees this Elk Indian. dog. Yes, he sees this Indian. Uh, well, it's another one of those great. Going after a kill from uh, these wolves. And, you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, he's like on all hands. He's like on all fours. He can't speak. Mm-hmm. He's trying to pantomime. It's really pathetic. And the, the Indian man throws him. You know, throws him a liver. You know, like he's one of the dogs in the pack. And sits in the corner and 
in, chews in on the raw bloody chews liver. On the raw bloody bloody river. Yeah, liver. It's uh, but it's a cool. It's one of those. It's one of my favorite, like visually, um, because the um the Pawnee man uh, was it elk dog. Elk dog. Yeah. So elk dog has you know in order to chase off the um the wolves that took down the bison. Um, has built these massive bonfires around the the carcass, and so you get this like uh, this, this side on shot of the carcass, and then these huge fucking fires. And you know, you'd mentioned before about the the the, the tonality, like the color of this film, but it's this it's a it's so neat because of the um, much like with Inglorious Bastards, uh, the use of primary colors is very prominent. Yeah, right. And this is all blues and oranges, uh, blues and reds. Um, you know, throughout this scene and white, of course, as well. But like, it's so stark in the way that those colors are presented on this fucking palette um, that makes it, I think, really effective. And they're as in well. like a clearing when they do it, so there's a lot of it's vast open. space. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not it's not interrupted by trees. Well, mm-hmm. that, that's what makes this whole movie interesting. And again, it's why it's why I felt the need to bring up the color grading in the first place. When you think of winter, people normally think not necessarily of monochromatic, but of like this bleakness that tends to suggest an undersaturated look. Mm-hmm. If you do a good enough job with your color grading, and it's the right time of day, specifically sunset, which it is virtually the whole time during this movie. Yeah, like I said, we're always time. in a sunsetting kind of it's time in, in every, a lot of this stuff. Every color is on screen. If oh, you've yeah. got a river and a tree, you've got white, blue, uh, yellow from the sky. You have green from we the even trees. Get some good you have red from the and blood. Stuff from the skies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've everything's there. The ice reflections are all crazy colors. Like that's that's its own like. This movie is absurdly colorful for being desolate and cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's that's the direct consequence of extremely deft camera work. By contrast, in Saving Private Ryan, um, they're storming a French beach, and it looks like purgatory. It was overcast that day, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. So we have, um, we now have a healed neck, and the Indians... <laughs> It's like uh, someone's watching the Normandy beach scene and they're like, the weather was, this is completely accurate. It was overcast. <laughs> it's fucking based on My the- eyes do oh, feel like they're dilated oh, when I'm storming the God. beaches of Normandy. Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, the pact between the, um, the Indian loving white man and the Indian man who hates white people has been formed. Uh, they have their pass. They, they pass by each other. Um, Elk Dog shows up in a bunch of other scenes. Basically, well, he, he, whenever they need a commentary on the French or the English being assholes, yeah. too. And he he runs around a little bit with with Hugh, not the whole time, but he does run around with him for a small period of time. Uh, you know, long Elk enough Dog, to Elk imply Dog some has, healing. Well, Elk yeah. Dog has taken him has is going to care for him. Yeah, right? yeah. he's not going to leave. Like once again, you know, these like these because I mean, there, but there's nothing compelling you out there. I mean, we have to. Like, like nature is just something that most of us do not have to deal with, right? It's a problem that civilization has solved for us, right? Yes. Like nature. Thank God. Yeah, I know. I'm not, I'm not complaining here, but I'm just <laughs> saying that like we as like modern humans do not have to solve the problem of nature. And, you know, the, the choices that these, that these characters have to kind of face, um, you know, elk dog throws them a piece of livery, you know, and yeah. then. Not only that, but then, you know, you're coming with me, right? I'm going to take you along as best I can, as far as I can. And we're going to, you know, we'll see how this is going to go about. And um, 
I think it's, I think once again, it's rather touching. I mean, there's no re he doesn't have to. Yeah. There's uh, a cool little kind of Indian scene when, you know, when he, uh, he tells, he, you know, he tells Hugh that, you know, his skin is rotting. So he builds him a little, like a little sauna house to sleep in because he's like, you can't keep going on this journey. Like, you well, need it's to a heal. fucking blizzard coming in Yeah, <laughs> and he's already kind of like picked these herbs or whatever. But when this blizzard hits, he builds him a little, like, like you said, a little sauna shack. He builds shack. him a little sauna shack. Yeah. A little sauna teepee. And he fucking just like puts it cause he loses uh, glass is unconscious. It looks yeah. like. Yeah. He's yeah. Like he can't really keep moving, which is the problem they ran into the first time why they couldn't drag him back to this fort yeah. because he's just in no condition to be traveling in these harsh elements. So apparently, but afterwards, right. Leo's in his uh, glasses in his little, uh, teepee sauna and, um, you know, he emerges after the storm and everything like that, presumably better than when he got in. And, um, but Elk Dog's not there. Now, we don't know what's happened. Like, Elk Dog has maybe has moved on, uh, maybe just left temporarily. I, you know, um, left him food. I guess yeah. there's food hanging, but it's a little ambiguous from my money. Um, and, well, we do uh, find out what ended up happening to okay. Elk Dog shortly. Well, I don't want to bury Elk Dog yet, yeah. right? But there is one of my favorite little little momentary scenes is that on their on their little buddy, you know, the, like the 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 ten minutes of buddy movie that kind of pops out of this thing. Um, they have a scene where they're like just sitting um, next to a bush uh, that's kind of like built up a little bit, and they're both kind of like leaning against it. And Elk Dog, like looking up and seeing that it's snowing, like starts catching snowflakes mm -hmm. on his tongue. And they're like, like giggling to yeah. <laughs> as they're like catching snowflakes. Now, someone who's never seen snow or been in snow, as a, I mean, seems very interesting to me. It seems like a neat thing to do would be to catch snowflakes. On oh your yeah, phone. it's a but, thing uh, you can do. It's a thing. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. It's yeah. one of the four things you can do in snow. Which the other three being break your legs. Okay. Break your arms. Uh huh. And die. Oh, I think you crash your car down, slowly down a hill. Die. Oh, plenty of people yeah. live through that. Have you seen what, car Have dying? Uh, I've seen cars come from up north, man. They're fucking pockmarked. They look like Bill Murray's face. It's terrible. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so... so uh, uh, look, how you break your arm, leg, or die is up to you. You can ski, snowboard, drive a car, be outside. You can slip on ice. You can be stuck in an avalanche. You can be attacked by a bear because <laughs> Hugh's, Hugh's leg was broken <laughs> in, the, in the bear Christ. attack. I'm so glad I live in be, Florida. Or you can be attacked by Indians. So... You know, so during our elk dog buddy moments, uh, when Fitz and, you know, Fitz and the kid made it back to the fort, and I know we referenced this, but I wanted to, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on the fort, because as we were noting earlier, we've, we've dealt with this, this nature issue, like, we don't have to suffer these consequences of, like, living in a harsh environment, we've mm -hmm. tamed that shit by yeah. just getting rid of it, much like we did with the Indians. Damn straight. So, for our expedition, you know... After they've been out for however many months collecting pelts, they get back to the fort. Mm -hmm. And man, when you see that fort, you go, that looks just as shitty as fucking living on the outside. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, the fort, especially given how um, placid and nice Inyaratu's cameraman has made the outside look, mm -hmm. the fort is basically oh, just slightly rearranged trees in the exact same scenario. Yes. But, but, but then you're just closer. In next to people with like crappy in in like poorly <coughs> ventilated rooms, which seems actually maybe worse than just being outside. Yeah, yeah, it's like dim, <laughs> and they have like what what fire they have on the inside has to be contained in such a way that it's not it vented provides, properly. Yeah, it provides almost no, like they they're sitting. Every scene in the fort is basically people eating. And they all look uncomfortable. Oh yeah, the whole oh, time. Yeah. Like they're all like hunched over these tables, 
eating not enough food out of a bowl. Yes. Like it's it's not a good time. Yeah, so like this this isn't much more relief than being on the outside. So I just I love the contrast of of how like you think the fort would be like an inviting place, but the fort seems probably more miserable than Hofenet. Yeah. On the outside. Yeah. In a lot of respects. It's just a question of how many people you want around basically yeah. <laughs> while you suffer through the cold. Okay, so um, so there's a little side story going on because our Americans are not the only trappers out there. There's some French trappers as well, and there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of rivalry between these two groups. And we do learn that the French trackers uh, a kill our beloved elk dog. So uh, Leo is hoofing this alone, and they also kidnapped one of the Rees. Chief's daughters. Um, so there's a scene after we find out that Elk Dog has been killed. Where oh my Leo, bad, I, there's there's Elk Dog, and then there's then there's the, the Indian that helps him. Oh, Elk Dog is the leader whose daughter is. Captured. Oh okay okay okay. The Pawnee is the man that helps him. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm getting the names. They don't have pictures in Wikipedia, and I'm having a God hell of a time it, identifying okay. the names here. Okay, so so the Pawnee man it is killed. It might be Boyhawk. I don't I don't think they ever say his name. Maybe not. Yeah, Elk, well, Elk Dog is definitely the older Indian guy. Okay. Well, that guy's daughter's been taken uh, by the, the French Ree. Canadians. Yeah, Ree, yeah. And the French Canadians also appear to have killed our beloved Pawnee that was helping out Leo. And that's why we find out that he's not, you know, that when Leo emerges from his little steam room, uh, he is alone because his buddy has been killed. So Leo infiltrates the French camp and he releases the. Ree's uh, elk dog's daughter, and he steals some horses. For a little while. For a little while. And that's kind of like a side story that's that's going on. Um, Which is only important because it sets up the next great caper in the U-Class <laughs> legacy. Um, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about the French. I don't really care about them. No, but... They're but, French. Yeah. They're loud. They're other. They're ass- boisterous. Yeah. They're drinking. Yes, but anyways, the, the, they speak French. Yeah, but the, but the they're re- just sh- other shitty white people. Yeah, I mean, despite the relay, uh, despite uh, you know, Glass saving the the Ree's daughter, there's still a scene where they ch- that's where they chase him off a cliff. Basically, yeah. oh god, so good. So, <laughs> so good. He's just like. Gotta go, gets on a horse as fast as he fucking can and accidentally runs that horse straight off a cliff. Yeah, like the way that you run Buffalo where you get them all to run so that they fall off the cliff. You know, that's basically what Leo does to himself as he's outrunning the re here. It looks like something Bruce Willis would do on purpose in a movie. (laughs) Is the only way I can describe it. Except that in this one, the horse falls off the cliff and Hugh just like tumbles he like falls in a tree. Into a tree. Yeah, and and survives, I guess. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Call that surviving, yeah. yeah. But but what's great about this scene is not only how ridiculous it is, it's how like beautifully it's shot. Oh yeah, no, again, it's, all it's, of these scenes. It's beautiful. So we have this this crushed horse that just fell off a cliff. And Glass crawls up to it because, you know, he's in not great shape because he just fell on a tree off the cliff. And so he guts this horse 
and he crawls inside to sleep in it overnight. But the scene is beautiful because there's these giant horse organs making this lovely semicircle <laughs> around this dead gutted horse in this beautiful white sparkling snow. And it's, it's like, it's like, it's like picture perfect, even though it's like just a gross horse gutting scene. Mm -hmm. It's, it's amazing. Like how elegant all of our like misery is <laughs> this in is, this movie. This is the other Maybe not the last point mm -hmm. of um, comparison or contrast to Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan is full of carnage. It's all over that movie. Um, and yet, this movie has an attitude about it. It doesn't automatically assume it's all just for the sake of horrifying people. The way that the horse is arranged oh, in this it's, scene. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's, yeah, it's, I even I even drew a, I, I I drew it on my notes actually, like <laughs> the horse and the guts, and and the guts are spread like in a beautiful semicircle around it. Mm -hmm. and like Tom Hanks's job in every movie is to be the audience surrogate, is to be horrified or appalled for us. Um, in this movie, it's quite clear that everyone from the director on down realizes that there is beauty in this horror, in this like mange because. Even the weaponry speaks to this. This movie, I Nicole, you keep going back to the things that are true or untrue about mm -hmm. this movie. I'm struck by how much of this movie was, in fact, just flat out fabricated in a way that suggests that it could have just been made whole cloth. But this arrow had to have been chosen at least somewhat deliberately. And I think part of the reason I think that is that there are a lot of shots of people getting hit with arrows mm -hmm. and there's something much, much more romantic and grisly about being pierced by an arrow than being shot. Um, bombs are their own thing, but being shot is it's, it, it's not necessarily cold, but being on the receiving end of an arrow at the very beginning it's so, of this it's movie. It's so much more like, like visceral. Ow. Y yeah. Because like the, the arrows have barbs and they're not like neat little pieces of metal. I mean, it's, there's like more ripping and tearing. Well, and, and it's that's like a more visceral it's, experience. It's relationship to the body is yeah. much more intimate. Mm -hmm. When you get shot somewhere on the body, unless it blows a limb off, uh, you're, you're shot. Yeah. Like that's, and you're incapacitated maybe, but, and there's like blood maybe, and it rips your clothes with an arrow. There is something about its connection to the body that again, fits into this body horror thing. But the movie isn't horrifying that way. It's much more interested in being, like, romantic's the wrong word, but it's, it's like, aesthetically in tune <laughs> with its gore. Yeah. In a way that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, and this horse scene is a perfect example yeah. of that. I love, I love it's this not, scene. It's not just, like, guts of a horse on the side of a thing, the way that, you know, if Tom Hanks had run into that in Saving Private Ryan, it would have just been the horse with... It's got somewhat out. And, and it, it would have been, been like a, a gross looking brown horse on some dead grass. And it, it like, it just, it, yeah. it wouldn't have had the symmetry. The horrors of war this... would have been in full effect. <laughs> Not here. Not here. This dead horse is beautiful. Okay. And so this is so, so, okay. At the, the point we're talking at, we're already two hours into this film. Yes, we okay? are. <laughs> and I have to say, 
like for being such a long movie, I like I enjoy the aesthetics of this journey so much that this movie doesn't even feel long because we're we're about two hours when we get to this horse scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we still have about thirty eight minutes left to <laughs> to to sum up the story here, and and I feel like it's it. it at no point, I don't want to say that at no point does the journey get slow. It's that at no point is like the, like, is watching this journey, like, start becoming uninteresting. Like, it's like this movie just holds on, like, the aesthetics of this movie just captivate my attention well, the you whole get, way through. <laughs> you get tension <laughs> release. And you get it the whole time. You cringe and then you sigh. And you cringe and you sigh. There's blood and then there's clouds and then there's blood and there's and trees. And there's old growth forest. Yeah. And then there's like a and beautiful full moon. And, and then there's bones. <laughs> and then it's just, it's back and forth through the whole movie. And it's done at a pace that's completely just nonchalant. It just moves. Yeah, I mean, it. yeah, it just, it. yeah, it never hurries. Well, the story is well executed also where you get the different threads, you know, of of glass Fitzgerald, the fort, um, the French trappers, the, the re, re, you know, all those are kind the, of are real. This flashback, yeah, that kind of eases off towards the end, thank God. Well, but. then, but they all are they all are are intertwined in a way that, like, a lot, you know, once you know, when we need the story, you know, when the narrative needs or the plot needs progression, you know, we'll get. Well, they're all it'll, in it'll the same forward. man yeah. versus nature, you and know, all conflict. You know, they each they're but uh, they're all just trying to win. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this, so like I said, we're about two hours here, but this movie, uh, once Glass reaches back to the fort, this movie starts kind of wrapping up rather quickly for as, uh, leisurely as we were, you know, getting to this point. I feel like the movie almost wraps up quickly from here. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the plot becomes much more evident. I mean, up to this point. The plot of every character that we follow that we can understand is get to the fort. Yeah, that's that's all they're all. And that's trying and that's why do. I said it's so anticlimactic when you get to the fort because the, you're just like, why would you even like this is this is what you have going for you? The like, journey, this is, not the destination. It's miserable, you know. But but Glass, he does make it back to this fort. Uh, in real life, this was about a six week journey over probably two hundred miles. Um, fun, fun. Yes, yes. And, of course, then we have our revenant, you know, because the man who was supposed to be dead shows up at the fort. This <coughs> is not good news for Fitzgerald. Uh, Bridger basically thinks that he saw a ghost, so there's a little revenant in there, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Hugh does, uh, does forgive Bridger because he understands that he had no moral agency in that situation. But not before Bridger gets a muzzle in the face first. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's probably just how they solve problems back then. In fact, I'm pretty sure Hugh deliberately waits until he's out of earshot of the people prosecuting him to, um, (laughs) to indicate that he was just following orders in his completely American accent at that point, Mm -hmm. uh, when he's finally able to rasp again. Yeah. And I don't want to delve too much on the time at the fort because it's the most I think the probably most miserable parts of the whole film. Yeah, it's it's a different movie at but that what point. I, but what I love about when Hugh gets to the fort is that literally the turnaround is one day later, he is right back out there. <laughs> because, uh, you know, our antagonist Fitzgerald has left and we've got to close this storyline because this is the only storyline we really have 
going on. Track there, them down. Is we have to track down Fitz and get our revenge. And and like I, said, I just I just love the quick turnaround because you're like, oh, he made it back and this huge journey. And the next day he's like, I'm I'm going right back out there. Yeah. Like I'm I'm not hanging around here, folks. <laughs> no, he's in permanent pursuit of Fitz. Yeah. Um, whether he is five feet from him or 20 miles. Yeah, from no him. hot meal. That'll just, that, that, I, I want to stay hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we're, we're getting to that. Yeah. I, there's a chase. Uh, the captain gets killed. The captain's just a general, honorable, but inexperienced he's guy. An, he's an honorable ginger. Yeah. But like well, all he's just trying gingers. to make, just trying to make money to send home to his family. Well said. Uh, yeah, he gets killed. And then, um, <laughs> As all gingers find. I, there's there's a relatively generic There's some more Indian human shield yeah. decoy thing that happens. And then the final the final incredibly unnecessarily gory fight where one of them would have given up earlier than they did, but because this is a genuine Hollywood blockbuster, they have a knife fight that goes on for longer than the stamina of any human would tolerate it going for, especially in the middle of winter. With well, I mean, six weeks is not long enough to heal a bear attack. No, I know, and and at this point, um, six years. Well, is yeah, enough to heal a bear. and at this point in the movie, because the movie decided to take place in, uh, you know, take place fall to winter, you know, they're they're like going through deep snow. They're like uh, waist high snow through through this this little end portion well, where he well, tracks. Glass does have down. a horse while he's tracking down Fitzgerald. So he does have a horse at least, yeah. Yes. He does. I'm sure the horse is thrilled about this, <laughs> yeah, by the way. Jesus Christ. So I wanted to touch on the, in the real life story, uh, Hugh Glass did have a bone to pick with Fitzgerald. But it wasn't it wasn't a personal revenge one, you know. He didn't want to murder him. Yeah, he didn't want to murder. Well, and Fitzgerald didn't like murder any imaginary children of his or anything like that. But what Fitzgerald did do is he took his gun when he left him for dead. Oh my god! And that gun was Hugh Glass's like prized possession. Yeah. So in the real story, when Hugh gets back to the fort and finds out Fitzgerald had enlisted in the army, he goes not just any army. The Confederate yeah, Army. Confederate, yeah, Confederate Yeah, yeah. Uh, just in case you need to be sure who to root for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just in case you weren't sure that he was an asshole. He goes, yeah, so Fitzgerald's down in Missouri at Fort Atkinson. And Hugh Glass leaves the fort after the bear attack when he gets there. And he hooks, hoofs it down to Missouri to go find Fitzgerald in real life to retrieve his gun. And he did not kill him because, they said because he was a soldier. At that point, Glass would have been tried for murder had mm-hmm. he murdered him. But he did retrieve his gun successfully. Excellent. And go on many more expeditions after this experience. Not so in the movie. In the movie, we kind of just wrap it up <laughs> with as a fight. revenge with tale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some people lose some fingers, some bones. There's a lot of stabbing. Some again, someone should have died. Yeah. Um, well, it should be said that at the end of the knife scene, right? Glass has his man at ba- ba- da- a river again, right? Down mm-hmm. by a river again. And who should appear but the re? Yes. That has been going around this whole time, and he and he lets he lets Glass lets Fitzgerald go. And Fitzgerald gets scalped again. Yeah, <laughs> like so, like a James Bond yeah, villain. Yeah, exactly. Like so, the last thing he in his, in Fitzgerald's miserable fucking life 
uh, is him re-experiencing getting scalped again, which is, you know. Which is perfectly good payment for his shitty-ass last line yeah. right before being released. Uh, it's not going to bring your kid back. Yeah. Um, or your boy back, which one or the other. And it is at this point. He says your boy a lot. Mm, boy. Yeah. Yeah. In an accent that only he somehow yeah. can imitate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then the, the movie leaves us with the last scene of Hugh's Revenant. Uh, his wife's floating up and he's presumably dying, but not dying very quickly from his many, many knife stabbings. Yes. Um, and he stares into the camera for a DiCaprio amount of time. Breathing. Breathing and just like wanting that award so bad. <laughs> so bad. And he gets it. So I guess it has a it happy ending. It was like ending. win, win, win. Yeah. But, but I mean, to close the, to close the notion of the Revenant being a two-pronged thing, uh, that Revenant is still haunting him, but now that Fitzgerald is dead, he does have to contend with the fact that uh, Hugh's purpose in life over the course of this movie is to kill Fitz. And he has, uh, at the point that Hawk dies, at the point at which Fitz kills Hawk, which is probably the reason why he's following him around for revenge in the first place, to be fair, but there is no absolution for him now. That was it. He doesn't have a family anymore. He has killed the person who wronged him. Um, He is allowed to die. Um, And he's not going to. He's still there. He's still mm-hmm. alive. He's probably going to make it back to the fort. He'll probably go do many more years many of more. other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he will eventually get killed by Re. Yes. He's he's a ghost with no one to haunt. Yes. <laughs> All right. So you guys help me out here a little bit? He's sure. a lost soul. Uh, uh, so I, one of the, how do you spell Revenant? I, guess, I could not. R-E-R-E-V-E-N-A-N-T. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. Anything else we can help you with? No, that was it. I just realized I didn't know how to spell Revenant as I was looking <laughs> at the fuck. Anyway, I couldn't. So it Ryan, out. yeah, assessment. So this is a film. Uh, it is a particularly lovely film. Uh, it is a done by a very talented director uh, whose films I thoroughly enjoy. Leonardo DiCaprio is a very good actor. Um, he is not a great actor. If you'd like to see some great acting, uh, just watch Tom Hardy in this film. Uh, but he's a very good actor. Um, and I got to say, um, one out of one would watch again. I mean, even for something that's as vicious and as miserable and wh- whose characters endure horror after horror uh, that we are viscerally exposed to. Uh, yeah, it's a good time. It's it's, cool. it's, it is. And uh, Oh, no, I, I, I love this movie. But I like... I like how this is based on a true story, you know, just enough to get that moniker, but then, you know, the liberties taken by the director present us an absolutely gorgeous piece of film because that's what's really important when you're making a film. Not not how how accurate you stay to the facts, but are you making a good film? And I feel like it's a filmmaker's job to tweak stuff because when I watch a movie, I don't expect it to be accurate. Like I want people to do what Inuritu did. You know, you take kind of an interesting, you know, take person, take an interesting event, but then you expound on it to make a beautiful product. And mm-hmm. I think he did that lovely here. Um, I will definitely watch this again. 
it is a long, enjoyable journey. And the misery, I don't know, it just, it's just, it's, it's like an enjoyable, miserable journey that I, I really like watching. Much like my picks from, let's say, Cobra to <laughs> Port of Call New Orleans to No Country for Old Men to... I am a big fan of aesthetic films. Um, this movie is 100% aesthetic for me. Um, I want the people doing the technical side of the job of presenting the film to do everything in their power to make it fun to watch what's going on. Uh, whether that's picking actors that can actually act or picking actors that can't as the, depending uh, on ha- depending what's on, required. Yeah. I want the scenery to be good and flashy or muted in such a way that, you know, it, I want it to be enjoyable to watch beyond the gravitas of what the movie is supposed to mean. Because you're not interested in the story. Not generally, no. I'm, or the people. I you're not the, there to you're not there to attach to characters. I like the arc. <laughs> and I like the arc because the arc is a technical phenomenon. <laughs> the arc can be mastered. There is and this isn't this isn't necessarily to denigrate like the art side of things, because the form of aesthetics that I'm talking about is very technical. You, a movie is only two hours long. There's only so much actual like philosophical grounding you can stuff into a movie before it sucks. Um, And most of the time, the people who are directing, the people who understand enough about making a movie to make a movie, uh, spent their life doing that instead of pondering important questions. So odds are relatively good with a couple of exceptions. They're going to be bad at that if they try. And we have plenty of examples of that. This movie does not do that. This movie is in Yaratu clearly wanted to film something about the strife of the winter in this time period, but he does not let that interfere with the camera work or the acting or just the pace even of this movie. I love the pace of this film. he let he let whatever he wanted to put in this movie from a, like a philosophical standpoint not get in the way of how beautiful this is to watch and i appreciate that because most people don't have that restraint yeah um so one out of one stars i've been waiting to watch this movie again since it came out of the theater yeah, i watched we saw it in, in the, the theater. theater yeah yeah and it was i've watched it one other time since seeing it in the theater between then and and uh, last week so yeah it does not get in its own way. Nope. No, Holds up, man. No. I really like that. No, Inuyasha is like, I mean, he is so like masterful at crafting a film. I mean, Birdman showed that he knows how to do it, you know, and, and that was his Hollywood breakthrough, I, I would say. But like, like now, now he has all the keys to the kingdom. Like mm-hmm. he can just, he, he doesn't have to prove it anymore. He can just do it. Mm-hmm. He can get Leo DiCaprio an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. Where no one else. Where everyone else failed. <laughs> Only he holds the key to the kingdom. Yeah, no, that's that's the perfect analogy there. Um, so. So, David. What kind yeah. of true stories are we going to be watching this week? So we week? have our final installment in our Based on a True Story Month. All right, so. Month and a half. Um, our first Based on a True Story. Was. Was the uh, true-ish story of a, <laughs> of a man of a his novel. lawyer of a gonzo <laughs> journalist yeah <laughs> his attorney <laughs> it was Great the fa- it was the faithful reproduction of a fake ordeal yes 
Um, Memory's fallible. Yeah. It is. So they needed the tape recorder, especially <laughs> when you tamper with it deliberately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then we have our survivor story. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. So we're actually missing a lot of ground. <laughs> There's a lot of things that we could cover as far as true stories. So I went with a slightly more uh, gimmicky thing. I went with a movie that I uh, haven't seen. I only am familiar with. Excellent. Um, but Ryan, you have mentioned it before, yeah. um, as the counterpart to Charlie Chaplin in the, uh, 1920s, there was a guy by the name of Buster Keaton. Yes, there was. Uh, and, uh, he put out a little film called, uh, The General. No shit. <laughs> chronicling the 1862 theft of a railroad locomotive <laughs> and its recovery by an overlooked quote oh, unquote so little guy. We're staying in the 1800s. <laughs> what? <laughs> We're Close staying enough, in the yeah. 1800s? Holy in both, shit. Yeah. In both inspiration for the story and the film itself, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that ought to be fun. No shit. Oh, I love this movie. God damn. This uh, is not going to be as long as The Revenant. No, I it is not. We'll clip through this fucker, yeah. It'll it's like 70 minutes. Yeah, if that. Something like that. Uh, stay tuned for that uh, next week or the one after that. Uh, in the meantime... Ryan, Nicole. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being part of the Machination Log. Booyah. Good morning, everyone.